Well, good morning. It's been more than a year, and I haven't figured out how to deal with Nate. So if you've got ideas, let me know. Email me. I'm not sure what to do at this point. How many of you have either helped somebody learn to ride a bike or watched somebody teaching another person to ride a bike? Well, the parent or whoever it is, I mean, they're running alongside the kid because they don't want them to fall and right, kind of hurt themselves, wreck their lives. I speak from experience because at six years old, I fell learning to ride a bike and broke my collarbone. My parents felt awful, but, but you know, that's a picture. <laughs> God is a bit like that parent. What is he doing? that we don't wreck our lives. We can be sure he's not going to fail, like some parents do. Um, but how does God work to keep us from destroying our lives? I want to talk about that today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open that to 1 Samuel 25. We're going to go all the way through this passage, wrestling with this very question, how does, keep, how does God keep us from destroying our lives? If you haven't been with us, we are in a sermon series we're entitled Reliant. And we're hoping that through this series, we're break, being broken of self-reliance and moving towards full reliance on God. And to do that, we're trusting God's account of Israel's transition from a loose federation of states to a monarchy, as is recorded in First and Second Samuel, uh, to guide us in that. And, and God to even use the experiences of those people. Now, there were lots of issues there, but one of them was uh, Israel was feeling threatened by the Philistines and other enemies. And they thought, you know what we need? We need a king. If we could just get a king, we'd be good. And, and God said, no, I'm really what you need. But um, they kept asking for a king. And finally God said, no, I'm going to let you, I'm going to answer your prayer. So what you'll see is you ultimately need me. So the first king was a guy named Saul. He was tall. He looked good. But he missed a key part when he was anointed. The wording was chosen. So Saul, you're not an absolute king here. You're a king under my rule. Saul missed that memo, and on two different occasions, he directly disobeyed God. And when confronted, he, was, he rationalized or he blamed other people. And, and God said, I'm moving on. I need a king who will follow me. And, and David was anointed. And, and that set up this conflict. I don't know that Saul knew specifically that David was anointed as king, but he could see David's popularity rise. And it's David who dropped Goliath with the stone, and, and he was becoming more and more popular. And so Saul begins to chase David down, and that's where we are. We're in this chase. At times, um, David's handled it well. At other times, he didn't. At one point, he, he resorted to deception and cost uh, 85 lives of priests and, and their families. And so we're in the midst of that uh, pursuit. As we pick it up in 1 Samuel 25, verse 1, it says, Then Samuel died. Now, Samuel's the prophet. Uh, when we opened the book, word, a word from God was rare because the priests were corrupt. Hannah was a woman who was barren. She said, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll dedicate him to you. And she did. And that son's name was Samuel. And so Samuel uh, was recognized as a lad, as the voice of God from north to south in Israel. But he dies. And all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. This is a loss for Israel, but it's a loss for David, too, because Samuel's the voice of God, and he's a reliable um, refuge for David. 
Verse 2, now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel, now parenthesis, now the man's name was Nabal, and the wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dwellings, and he was a Calebite. That David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Now sheep shearing was a big event, gathered a lot of people. It was a bit of a festival. It was a celebration. There was food and drink. And so David wants in on this. David wants a part of this. Verse 4, uh, verse 5. So then David sent 10 young men. So David said to his men, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. And what we're going to find out later is that David was a wall of protection, and his men were a wall of protection to these people. So, verse 8, ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please get whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So David's talking about the kinship, what they have in mind. But he's also saying, hey, 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 I have been, you know, I've been running kind of interference for you. Could you give me some kind of compensation here? He's asking for, for a payment. So this request is made. And starting in verse 9, we get... Nabal's response. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all the words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David? Come on, come on, come on, come on. David's known throughout Israel. Okay? Saul's chasing David because David's popularity is on the rise and you're saying, who is David? Everybody knows David dropped Goliath with the stone. That's an insult. He's trying to put David down. But he's not done. He asks, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Not only is he dissing David, but he's dissing his ancestors. Who's Jesse? Calling, questioning the credibility of David's father. Huh. There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. David's no more than a runaway servant. Who is he to be asking me for food? He's a beggar. Should I then take my bread? Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears? I got an operation going on here. And give it to men whose origin? I do not know. That's a rhetorical question. No, I'm not going to give it to this little wife. How do you think that's going to play with David? Well, Verse 12, so David's young men retraced their way and went back. And they came and told him according to all these words. How does David respond? Verse 13, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. Why do you think they're girding on their swords? David has been insulted. He's mad, and he's going to demand retribution. How? By slaughtering everybody. You overreacting a little bit? But he's mad. He's ticked. If I weren't in the pulpit, I'd use some other words. 
It will become very clear in verse 22 what David has in mind. We'll get there in just a minute. But one of the young men told Abigail and Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers, messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us and were not insulted. Nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us. They let us do what we did, shepherding without worried about being raided. They were a wall to us by, both by day, by night, and by day. All the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do. For evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a, what kind of man? Worthless man that no one can speak to him. You know, sometimes it's fun to be kind of that independent person. And you know what? You can't tell me anything. And we think that's that rugged independence. You know what the Bible calls those kinds of people? Worthless. Worthless. Nabal, for all his wealth, 3,000 of this and 1,000 of those, is a worthless man. Because he won't listen to anybody. Verse 18, Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Are you like that with your spouse? You're so stubborn that he or she has to act independently. No one can tell you anything. But that's what Abigail's doing because she knows he, she won't, he won't listen. She's trying to save his life is what she's trying to do. Verse 20, and it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. David's on the way to do the deed. So she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. The translation is clear up here. David's a lot more vulgar than what this says. But he's going to kill every man involved in Nabal's operation. The sheep shearers, the people, they're all dead. They're guilty by association. David's anger is out of control. And he's about to do something heinous. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this. What kind of man? 
worthless man, because you can't tell him anything. Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. No control over emotions, can't be talked down from anything. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She's doing a couple things here. She's making a show of humility that her husband should have shown. And she's making a payment that's just and fair. She goes on, verse 26. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. She points out a lot here. Hey, David, David, you... you God in heaven is going to create an enduring house for you. And in fact, that's Jesus who we're celebrating. He is the line of David. Your name is going to be great. Don't stain it with needless bloodshed. You know, we can talk about the case where there's just war or self-defense, but this is not. <laughs> this is not self-defense. This is not just war. This is David really being mad. And there's no excuse. There's no excuse for what he's about to do. As people who follow Jesus, we need to be about de-escalating. We talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. What does that mean? It means we give up the right to equal retribution. And to go threaten to slay a bunch of people because you're really mad, that ain't going to fly with God. There will be consequence to that. Verse 29, should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. God's going to take care of your enemies, David. You don't have to resort to this reaction. And when the Lord does for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel... This will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals with you, my Lord, then remember your maidservant. David, you're going to be king. Someday, do you want to look back? You know, I lost my temper there and needlessly took out a bunch of people who were, they didn't even know what was going on. But I was really ticked. So I, do you want that? David, you don't want that on your record as king. So we've seen Nabal, he's worthless because he won't listen to anybody. Will David be any different? Here's the woman, I mean, showing humility, bringing a gift, trying to talk him down. How does David respond? Verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. 
Abigail, I understand. You were sent by God. God sent a mediator. I was here. Nabal was there. I was really ticked. And you got right in the middle. And you said, hey, hey, you might want to think about this. And we have seen David as a flawed individual. And we will see more of it at the end of this passage. But give him credit. He's willing to listen. Can anybody tell you anything? Can anybody tell me anything? For as flawed as David is, he's going to listen. And blessed be your discernment, verse 33, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. Every male involved in this operation would have died. Innocent people were going to die because David was ticked. So David received from her hand what she had brought, said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I have what? I have listened. I have listened to you and granted your request. David sees Abigail as a divinely sent mediator. God is in the business of sending mediators. And she looks forward to an even greater mediator. His name is Jesus. Because you know what? You and I, we've acted foolishly. We've done stupid stuff. Who takes those consequences? Well, Jesus does. He's the mediator that keeps us from eternally ruining our life. Here's what Paul said about Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him, him being Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You failed. So did I. That's, that's what we got in common. We needed a mediator. We got one in Jesus. Abigail looks forward to this perfect mediator. How does God work to keep us from destroying ourselves? God provides a wise mediator who takes on the cost of our foolishness. God provides a wise mediator who takes on the cost of our foolishness. Now, remember Nabal? I mean, I mean, David's ticked at him. He insulted David, and David wanted to take him out, and everybody else was operating. There was another way to go. David could let God deal with Nabal. Verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. God will bring justice. God will deal justly with people in his time, in his way. He doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me. And he didn't need David going off and taking this person out and taking a bunch of innocent people with him. Part of living wisely is believing that God will ultimately bring justice. As followers of Jesus, we forfeit the right 
to revenge. Because we're sure that God is just and he will bring justice in his time and his way. And we see in David, we are capable of emotional reactions and overreacting to situations. It behooves us to back off and to listen to people who might be mediators. So Abigail said, you know, um, David, the Lord is going to build you an enduring house that's going to last forever. And that's true. That was declared in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, that was preceded by David saying to the Lord, hey, I want to build a house. I, I want to build the temple, God, for a place for you to be housed. And God said, no, you know, I'm going to have you get the pieces in place, but it's your son Solomon who will build the temple. In 1 Chronicles 28.3, we find out why God told David, no, here's what we find out. But God said to me, me being David, you shall not build a house for my name. Why? Because you're a man of war and have shed blood. David, I, I can't have you build my house. Even, even though it's war, and I understand war demands death or you be killed, I, I can't have that kind of person building my house. It's not who I am. Okay, if that's true in war, what were the consequences then if, if David had shed blood needlessly? I mean, as, as a warrior, it cost him the right to build the temple. David was wise to listen to the God-sent mediator, mediator Abigail. Now, lest we think David is flawless, verse 39 to 44 says he marries Abigail. Um, Deuteronomy 17, 17, written well before Israel came into the promised land, said, let not the king multiply wives. David is not complete. He's in process. And I think his ego is getting away. And this won't be the first time. He will multiply wives more and more and more. And we'll see this as he becomes king. And there'll be consequences to that. So like all of us, David is in process. But at least, at least on this occasion, he listens to a God-sent mediator. So we agree that Jesus is our ultimate mediator, but he works through human mediators to keep us from foolishness. So the question I have for you and for me is, who are we listening to? Who has the right to speak into our lives say that, you know, that's a bad idea. You need to back that off. If you're married, I would suggest your first, not your only, but your first mediator would be your spouse. So about 25 years ago, we were missionaries in Chile. It was not going well. And I look back at it now, and I'm willing to admit I was wrong. I still think I'm right in this situation. <laughs> but I sent an email to Boulder, to our leadership in Boulder, Colorado. It's about 5,000 miles from Concepcion, Chile, to Boulder. And I showed it to my wife, and she said, Andy, I would take the word betrayed out. That's, that's a pretty loaded word. So I did for a night. But I was still mad in the morning. I put it back in and I sent it. And I could hear the explosion. It's 5,000 miles away when that email landed. Now, listen to your wife. So about four or five years ago, I won't go into it. There was a ministry situation and the person kind of came back into our, my life and they sent an email and, and I responded and I showed it to Hope and she said, yeah, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that's a good idea at all. Let me write a, an alternate email. So she did. And I said, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, you, it doesn't say this and it doesn't say that. So, Andy, do we want to escalate this thing? Or do we want to de-escalate it? 
And I thought, that's a good idea. So you know what I did? I highlighted it. I copied it. I pasted it. And I sent it. It took me a while, but finally I learned. And you know, we see these people now in public, and it's, it's no thing. Do you have people who, when you're making a bad decision, that you'll listen to? I'm going to tell you, she's my first mediator, but she's not my only one. I have a number of guys I meet with regularly who will say, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. I think you're overreacting here. We need to be about cultivating mediators. People we trust enough, when they speak truth, we will listen and we're emotional, we're angry, you need to back off. Okay, I will. You know, as I didn't get married until I was 33. I had a bunch of people, married couples, as a single, who were mediators in my life. And in one situation, Hope and I had been dating, and I backed out. She was over in Almaty, Kazakhstan, and I was in Greeley, Colorado. And boy, a couple of these people just kind of jumped all over me. What were you thinking? You dropped the ball there. And, and that got me thinking about issues in my life. And, and I would say that kickstarted me on the road to making a good marriage decision. I listened to mediators. Who are you listening to? Who can speak truth into your life? Because we're all capable of David of reacting, being angry, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let my feelings be known. And then we live with regret. Who are those people? That you trust enough. And that means you're intentionally building relationship. You're intentionally being vulnerable. You're intentionally pursuing people. That you people say, no, 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 I, I wouldn't do that. I, I would do this. I wouldn't say that. I'd say this. I'd, I'd send this email instead of that email. Who are those people? Because this person saved David a lot of consequence of sin. You know, I go to the gym fairly often, and at times I'll see a person down there working with a trainer. And, and, and they're doing a squat, or they're doing bench press, whatever. And, and the trainer will step in and say, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. You, you, want, to, you want this position. Why? Because you're going to hurt yourself if you lift in that position. They're trying to keep them from destroying their body. They're trying to help them build their body instead of destroying it. Well, that's where God comes in. He sends us mediators who will help us build our lives spiritually and not destroy it. How does God keep us from destroying ourselves? God provides a wise mediator who takes on the foolishness or the cost of our foolishness. We're going to move to a time of communion now. So if you're a person or a couple that's leading a table, if you would come up, that would be great. Um, just so you know, we're not, we don't become, believe this becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. This is uh, a memorial. We're remembering this Jesus whose body was broken, who was our ultimate mediator, who died to take on our sin. We just ask that you be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to be a member here. What we'll do after I pray is these uh, ushers will dismiss you row by row. If you go section by section around these tables, the, the people who are leading communion will, will, will lead you through that. And we'll share in remembering Jesus together. So would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for Jesus having died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. He is our ultimate mediator. And Lord, um, thank you that he became sin in our place. Thank you also that you provide mediators within the body of Christ. I pray we'd be wise enough to allow those people to speak into our lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.